dear visiting friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Our theme today is Jesus brings certain hope. Would have been a field day for the tabloids. A teenage mum with a boyfriend who claims he's not the father. You imagine the follow-on. Latest from teenage mum. My baby came from God. <laughs> Rumours that the boyfriend has been having strange dreams. Jeremy Kyle would have been onto them in a flash. Now you might say, well, how do we know how old Mary was? We can't be sure she was as young as 13. But Jewish law permitted a girl to be married at the age of 13. She was certainly young. She was certainly pregnant. And Joseph, her fiancé, was certainly not the father. An announcement like that is still controversial, even in today's climate. Remember this guy? You may not know him. His name is Jeremy Forrest. He's a teacher from East Sussex. He ran away with one of his students, a 15-year-old girl. They found him in France. He got five and a half years in prison for abduction and for sexual activity with a child who was placed in his trust. You see, with the birth, the announcement of the pregnancy of Mary, we're on ground that is still very sensitive in our generation, the whole issue of underage sex. Jesus' arrival into the world wasn't some cute little affair. I know that's how primary school carol concerts make it look. But apart from the upheaval in the family, there were serious political waves. Herod, who was the local puppet king, kept in power by Rome, got to hear of it. And he was not best pleased. Now, Herod was not the son of a guy you would want living next door to you. I think we would probably describe him as a psychopath nowadays. He was certainly increasingly paranoid as he got older. He killed his wife. He still had eight others, by the way. He killed her two sons. He killed her mother. He killed her brother. He killed her grandfather. And to top it all, he killed his own oldest son. So slaughtering a few babies, maybe a few dozen babies in some outlying villages to get rid of a political rival, wouldn't have cost him a wink of sleep. Remember too the seriousness for Mary and Joseph. In those days, betrothal was not like engagement. When you were betrothed, you were husband and wife, except without the sex. If the betrothal was broken, it could only be broken by divorce. And if either partner was found to be unfaithful during the betrothal period, it was equivalent to adultery. And the possible penalty was death by stoning. Poor Joseph had quite a mess to sort out. It's not surprising, is it, that at first he just wanted to walk away. 
Do the whole thing quietly. Get it over and done with. That's the precarious world into which Jesus Christ was born. Wasn't the world like the crib? Where Mary is smiling and Joseph is smiling and the baby is smiling and the shepherds are smiling and even the donkey is smiling. There was in the announcement of this unexpected pregnancy very little to smile about. Mary and Joseph were poor and powerless. And around them raged all the power plays of the ancient world. The the shenanigans of Herod and, of course, the ever-present oppressive heel of Rome. These were just statistics, these folk. And yet they're participants in a story that has changed the history of the world. Christ came into that precarious state as the hope of the world. Now I think when we talk about hope, we mean at least three different things. First of all, I think we talk about hoping for something because we desperately want it. Remember when my kids were young? They wanted something badly, they went to see their mother. Mother said, go and see your father. And in those days I had a beard, so I would say, stroke my beard thoughtfully and say, mm, we'll see. And immediately they go off and say, he said yes. <laughs> Maybe they knew I was uh, a soft touch, but I call that the triumph of faith over evidence. <laughs> and you know, those of you who are, well, heavenward side of 21, you know that life is often about Hopes that get dashed. Things we desperately wanted that somehow never come to be. It's part of growing up. That's one kind of hope. Then there's another kind of hope where we want things for the world or for other people that we think are right. Things like noble causes. Nelson Mandela, the man in the news. For many people, he is an inspiration. Those involved in the power struggles in Palestine are on record as saying that he is a beacon of hope for them as they struggle against oppression and inequality. What was the hope that inspired him and kept him going despite the fact that he spent nearly 30 years of his life in prison? Well, here's a quote from his own autobiography, The Long Road to Freedom, where he describes the hope that sustained him. I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I cannot say. Part of being optimistic is keeping one's head pointed toward the sun, one's feet moving forward. There were many dark moments when my faith in humanity was sorely tested, but I would not and could not give myself up to despair. That way lies defeat and death. So now we know the hope that inspired Nelson Mandela was his hope in human nature. He refused to give up his hope in humanity. He believed in the right circumstances 
people could come good and bring freedom. He once said, people are not born to hate. They learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. So for Nelson Mandela, the optimist, human beings are reprogrammable. You can change the record, take out the software, put in other software, turn them from haters to lovers. Is he right? Is he right? Are human beings reprogrammable? Interestingly enough, people who live under liberal democracies suffer from exactly the same moral defects as those who live under tyranny. Those born under democratic skies can be cruel, selfish, greedy for power, the breakers of promises, people who think that they're the, they're the center of the universe. And that can apply under the blue skies of democracy as well under the dark skies of tyranny. You see, there are some political, economic and social solutions that don't really get to the heart of the problem. Maybe it is possible for human beings to live together in some sort of peace. But as you see in the current so-called Arab Spring in the Middle East, what is a spring for some is a winter for others. Situation for Christians, for example, has become almost untenable in parts of Syria, parts of Iraq. So the cost of one person's freedom is somebody else's loss of life or limb. Is it possible to live in peace? Is it possible for people to be reprogrammed and to substitute harmony for conflict? Well, maybe, to some extent, but I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that you can reprogram most of the social and external parts of our relationships. You can produce a framework of democracy. You can make people accountable for their actions. You can deal with corruption. But you can't get to the human heart. You can't get into the depths of the character where those moral defects, those dark places are found. Where greed lives, where selfishness lives, where pride lives, where fear lives, where lust lives. Politics is no, has no uh, power to change the human heart. Economics has no power to change the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can change the human heart. But then there's another kind of hope. And that's the hope that Christmas is really all about. There's the hope it is essentially a certainty that something good is coming. A hope that's built on cast iron guarantees.
There are essentially three aspects to this hope that I just want to speak to you for a few minutes to you uh, in a moment. If you ask somebody, what's the meaning of your life? Or what's the meaning of life in general? They'll often point to the stuff they own or the stuff they do. Or they may point to the relationships that they have. <clears throat> Basically, the meaning of life, as far as we're concerned, depends on what we invest our energies in. The feeling is that life has no meaning unless you are prepared to invest something of yourself in it. We're increasingly being told that human beings, like our environments, little more than moon dust, spinning helplessly in space. But what we learn from the story that Matthew tells us is in fact that there is a way that life can have meaning which has nothing to do with what we invest in it but has everything to do with what God has invested in it. Just before the reading we had this morning if you have a Bible you could flick over the page but Matthew gives us a family tree. It's not a very full one. <clears throat> there are some names missing. But in that family tree, he traces the line from Abraham, who was the founder of the Jewish nation, down through King David, who was the greatest king they ever had, right down to Joseph, who becomes the adoptive father of Mary. There's a reason for that family tree being there. You know what it tells us? It tells us that history... The history of humanity, our history, is not just, as one person called it, one damn thing after another. A constant circuit on the hamster wheel until you fall off exhausted. But history has a shape, a purpose, and a destination. That family tree, Matthew gives us, tells us that the whole purpose of human history terminates in Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of history. History isn't a series of accidents piled up one after another, but a meaningful, purposeful process shaped by God himself to bring his love and peace into the world. Jesus Christ is the aim and goal and destiny of history. And that's what gives life on our planet real meaning. Jesus' is coming into the world is living proof that God keeps his promises. Matthew tells us in his genealogy, his family tree, that Jesus is known as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Those two men together sum up all the longings and hopes of hundreds of generations of pious Israelites. Through all the defeats, through all the shame, all the painful time of exile, the Jews increasingly looked to a day when there would be no more Romans tramping on their land, no more Herods 
corrupting their kingship. No more corrupt priests. The land would be rid of all their enemies. The land would be free. The people would be free. And they would have a just king again. People long for that day. Trouble is, the longer you wait for something, the more you build a fantasy picture of what it's going to be like. But they long for a David, another David. They long for God's Messiah, God's promised king. And then it was Abraham. Why is he so important here? Well, he's so important here because he's the man that God said would bless the whole world. Jew and Gentile. He's there to demonstrate to us, who are Gentiles, that the history that terminates in Jesus Christ is our history. And our life has meaning, not because of what we invest in it, but because God has kept his ancient promises, fulfilled them in Jesus, given us hope for a certain future. We therefore know that history has an end. There is a new world coming. There is a happy ending to this sad story of human existence. But we won't be writing the script. God will. But not only do our lives receive meaning as a result of the coming of Christ, but we receive deliverance. A new Joshua. Jesus means, it's the same word in Hebrew, Yeshua. The guy who took over after Moses, took the people into the promised land, settled them in the land, kicked out a few of their enemies, and gave out the inheritance. A man who would settle the land and settle the possessions of the people of God forever. A deliverer. Now, as I said a moment ago, for centuries, people had looked forward to a deliverer. And they'd built up a picture of what this deliverer would be like. A military conqueror, an obvious leader, a man of charisma, a man who could command the respect of his troops, a man who would cause fear in the hearts of his enemies, a man who would make Israel great again, what they didn't expect was a carpenter's son from upstate Nazareth, born in very dubious circumstances. A man who never had any further education. A country boy. They never expected that. Here is the genius of God's plan. He sends this unlikely deliverer, not in human form, but inside a real humanity. Jesus Christ, born into this world, enters into our very skin. He is one of us. But here's where it gets very strange indeed. Proves that God ways, God's ways always take us by surprise. He takes that humanity and he crucifies it. He takes that humanity to a cross 
and kills it. Some of you here are medics. You know that the whole reason for having a life-saving operation is not to kill the patient. But in this case, the disease was so radical, the patient had to die. Humanity, so damaged by centuries of disregarding God. Human beings, ruined by their refusal to acknowledge God's place in their life. Human beings whose natural default setting is to go in the opposite direction to God and to ignore him when he speaks to them. That humanity was sick to death. And the only cure for it was to be killed. Jesus Christ took our humanity to a cross and killed it so that he could raise it up. So he could take that humanity as he rose and make it completely new. So that he could become not a conquering king in the Israelite mold, but the head of a new human race. They didn't expect that. You see, Christmas really does get rather interesting, doesn't it? As a result of taking our humanity to the cross and raising it from the dead, we now have a solid hope. Death can't defeat us. Death can't frustrate the plans that God has for us. Death cannot snatch away from us the hope that Jesus brings. Death is dead. Humanity is alive. And Jesus is leading that humanity into a new promised land. Much greater than the physical land of Israel or any other land for that matter. Leading that humanity into a new heavens and a new earth. That's the deliverance. And that's the hope that we have. But that's not all. Jesus didn't simply enter the human race. He never left it. He remained. He left his spirit behind. Right at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel here, we discover that Jesus is called God with us. God was really here on earth with us. Then if you turn to the very end of Matthew's gospel... Jesus dismisses his disciples and says, I want you to go into all the world, tell everybody about me, make disciples, baptize them. Tell them everything I've commanded you. I will always be with you. Those are the two bookends of Matthew's story. This is God with us, always with us. Once he entered the human race, never to leave. And that's the secret of this new humanity that Jesus is building. He's building a new humanity by living in us by his spirit. By building us brick on brick into new people like him. 
New people who are fit to live in a new universe. People who are no longer just concerned about having their own nose in their own individual trough, serving their own interests, getting through life the best they can, doing the odd good thing for others and basically living for self. But a new humanity that is liberated, set free, made new, deep down within where the dark things were. That's the hope of Christmas. Christ gives meaning to the whole of history. But then you have to take that history and make it your own. <laughs> you can't expect Jesus to sort of pass you by in a great hurry and wave to you in the motorcade and think, that's it, I've seen the light. Your life has to be woven into God's history, God's story. That's what it means to be one of his people. It means you follow him. You model your life on him. The story about the coming of Jesus becomes the story about the coming of Jesus for you. Jesus brings heart deliverance. Not by scrubbing deep, but by putting to death the old and bringing the new to life. And Jesus never leaves us. He will be with us until the work is done and then forever afterwards. Maybe you've never realised that that's what Christmas is really about. It's not about mistletoe and wine. Cliff Richard, it's probably a good thing really. Christmas pud, seeing those relatives, those awful yellow socks you get from your great Aunt Bess every year. There's a sentimental side to Christmas. I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. But isn't the certain hope of Christmas? The certain hope of Christmas is Jesus Christ. You know, we've had 50 years of Doctor Who. Jesus is time lord, always. Lord of time and history. Lord of our lives. Lord of the future. And as a result, the only one who has authority to speak into your life and say, follow me. Don't listen to others, listen to me, trust me. Do what I say. And he speaks into lives of people right now, today. Maybe even right here. Can you hear his voice? Do you recognize that Jesus is the Lord of history, time and eternity? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ alone has the authority to own your life. And the only one who has the power to make it new and bless it. He's your hope. He's your only hope. But he's your best hope. And it's not just for Christmas, but for life and forever. Shall we pray?